This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today I'd like to speak about some defenses to intentional torts, starting with self-defense and defense of a third party. The California Civil Code states, quote, any necessary force may be used to protect from wrongful injury the person or property of oneself, or of a wife, husband, child, parent, or other relative, or member of one's family, or of a ward, servant, master, or guest. This is California Civil Code Section 50, and provides a wonderful defense to the use of force, if done so properly. The person asserting the defense must reasonably believe that the danger exists and must use only such force as is reasonably necessary. A New York appellate court explained that the following jury instruction on self-defense was appropriate. Quote, defendant claims he was acting in self-defense and therefore is not liable for damages to the plaintiff. The defendant has the burden of establishing self-defense by a fair preponderance of the credible evidence, as I have already defined that term for you. In order to establish self-defense, the defendant must establish that he reasonably believed the plaintiff was attacking or about to attack him, and that the force that the defendant used to prevent injury to himself was reasonable under the circumstances. In order for the defendant to be justified in using physical force, you must find the following factors. First, whether the defendant was the initial aggressor. Initial aggressor means the person who first attacks or threatens to attack. The actual striking of the first blow or inflicting the first wound is not itself determinative of the question of who was the initial aggressor. A person who reasonably believes that another person is about to use physical force upon him need not wait until he is struck or wounded. He may in such circumstances use physical force defensively so long as it was reasonable for him to believe that the other person was using or about to use physical force upon him. He is then not considered to be the initial aggressor, even though he strikes the first blow or inflicts the first wound. Verbal quarrels, the use of abusive language, the calling of names or verbal threats do not justify the use of physical force. You may not consider any of them in determining who was the initial aggressor. If you are satisfied that the defendant was the initial aggressor, then you must find he was not acting in self-defense. This was a case called Killen v. Parata, a 2016 decision of the New York appellate courts. Now, deadly force, or force likely to cause bodily harm, is usually not justified 
merely in defense of property. Spring guns or other deadly mechanical devices are to be used only if deadly force is justifiable. Deadly force may be used against a felonious trespasser, for example. Then there is the question of whether the force used was reasonable. Use of reasonable force is always a defense. For example, 1. Holding a violent person's arms behind his back. 2. Striking a dog with about to attack a child. 3. Holding a person who was intentionally striking a child. Or 4. Escorting a trespasser off the premises. 2. Striking a dog about to attack a child. 3. Holding a person who was intentionally striking a child. Or 4. Escorting a trespasser off the premises. Now, the intentional torts of defamation, including libel and slander, also are subject to defenses. And the defenses to charges of defamation include but are not limited to truth. This is always a complete defense. Reasonable but erroneous belief. The truth of the accusation is no defense. The erroneous belief merely changes the tort from intentional to negligent defamation. Another intentional tort that uh, faces most insurance claims representatives when dealing with third-party liability claims is a claim of false imprisonment. Reasonable detention without arrest is a judicial privilege that is, for example, codified by Penal Code Section 490.5 F1 of the California Penal Code. For example, a storekeeper who believes a theft has been committed, may detain the suspected person for a reasonable time. Other types of detention found to be reasonable include detention of a librarian, search by a merchant, detention of a patient, or arrest by a private person when the person arrested has committed a felony. Other intentional, courts, uh, intentional torts include the torts of champerty and maintenance, sometimes accusing people of doing things they should not. For example, using venture capital to finance litigation has been tolerated in many states because defendants often have more funds available than injured plaintiffs. Recently, the Ohio Supreme Court and a few others have called into question whether such arrangements violate the traditional rule against champerty and maintenance. Champerty is a form of maintenance in which a non-party undertakes to further another's interest in a suit in exchange for receiving part of the proceeds in the event of a favorable recovery. The purpose of the tort of champerty is to preclude third parties from investing in litigation. 
In this regard, champerty is a subset of the broader doctrine of maintenance, which states that only individuals who have a bona fide interest in a case are entitled to assist the litigant in pursuing or defending a suit. Courts consider maintenance to be an officious intermeddling in a suit, which in no way belongs to one by maintaining or assisting either party with money or otherwise to prosecute or defend it, while champerty is a form of maintenance whereby a stranger makes a bargain with a plaintiff or defendant to divide the land or other matters sued for between them if they prevail at law whereupon the champertor is to carry on the party's suit at his own expense. And that is why most of the arrangements are couched as loans rather than as a participation in a suit for a percentage of the recovery. And those loans do not fall within either champerty or maintenance, but merely into the province of money lending. Malicious prosecution is a tort that causes a great deal of concern to litigants and to insurance claims people. When I was a uh, active insurance coverage lawyer representing insurance companies and assisting them in denying claims for fraud or for causes where there was simply no coverage. The insured whose claim was denied for some reason decided to sue the insurance company and to sue me personally as its attorney. When those suits were filed, they would be defended by a simple sworn declaration from me at a motion for summary judgment that I am not, nor have I ever been, an insurance company. I was merely acting as an attorney providing advice and counsel to clients. The suits were originally filed to avoid federal court because by naming a lawyer or a claims person as a defendant, total diversity would not exist and the case would be thrown back to state court. Well, I got tired of being sued in a malicious way simply to keep people out of federal court. And I also got tired of paying for a lawyer until my deductible was used up to defend the cases, so I brought malicious prosecution suits against the lawyers and parties who sued me maliciously. And after a while, those suits stopped the malicious suits. The only defense or the defenses to a malicious prosecution action is a termination of a case consistent with guilt or with civil liability. 
And that is not a basis for the tort of malicious prosecution. The plaintiff must show that the original action was brought without a lack of probable cause to make the criminal charge or to file the civil suit. By suing a person like me, a simple lawyer, for the tort of bad faith, a tort that only an insurance company can commit, was obviously, at least to me and to the courts where I brought the actions, malicious. If the defendant honestly and reasonably believed in the truth of the charge, the element requiring a favorable termination of the original case fails. The defense must be independently proved. It cannot be inferred from proof of malice. Advice of counsel is often a defense establishing probable cause. And for that example, the filing of a suit against me for giving advice to a client is the exact opposite of establishing probable cause for suing a lawyer for the tort of bad faith. The existence of probable cause, however, is a complete defense to a claim of malicious prosecution in New York and in almost every other state. And therefore, I was able to succeed in my cases and drive the lawyers and the parties to quick and reasonable settlements because they had no probable cause to sue me. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 105, Second Edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and as a paperback from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be of use or interest to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, my blog, and my Substack publications so that you can be advised of future blog postings and future videos. Thank you for your attention.